Well, welcome to Crossing. Are you doing well today? Kind of well. You get a day off tomorrow, so happy Labor Day to you. Yes, now we're excited. Day off. Well, do you remember the movie Titanic? By me just saying that, you can hear the song in your head, and you will not be able to stop thinking about it all day long. Well, a friend of mine was the sound guy for Titanic, and he was telling me what it was like to be on the movie set. He said there was the big stars, you know, you had Leonardo DiCaprio and Kate Winslet, but he said they also hired hundreds of extras, and they paid them all $100 a day. But some of the extras were first-class extras. They got to play the rich and the elite, and then you had the third-class extras. They were the bottom of the boat. You know, they were hanging out with Leonardo DiCaprio. And he said what began to happen over the next few weeks is he said that the first-class extras begin to mistreat the third-class extras. He said they would cut in line when it was time to have a meal. They would treat them like they were less than they were. And all of these people, they were all nobodies. They were all extras. They were all just paid $100 a day. But the first-class ones thought that they were better than everyone else. Well, this scenario happens all the time. This scenario plays out at work, at school, class reunions, family picnics. It can even happen at church. And last week, we started this brand new series called Me, Myself, and I, where we're tackling this issue of pride. And here's what's interesting about pride. You can see it in other people in a second, but it's almost impossible to see it in yourself, which means there may be people who are victims of your pride, and you don't even know it. See, pride's a big deal to God. God takes pride so seriously. In Proverbs chapter 6, it actually says that the, the Lord hates six things. You want to know what the number one thing on the list is? It's pride. That God hates pride. And so last week as we kicked this off, we talked about this idea that, that pride shuts us in and shuts God and others out. And learning how we need to recognize the pride in our own life. If we will step back and begin to look at our life, that we can recognize it so that we can finally get rid of it. Well, today, if you have your Bibles, I want you to turn to Daniel chapter 5. Or if you have the Crossing app, the scriptures and the main points are always in the app every single week. And so you can download that app and you can follow along and have those scriptures during the week as well. But in this series, as we're walking through Daniel, we're actually looking at three kings. We're looking at the three kings who Daniel served under. Now, the book of Daniel takes place in the country of Babylon. It's modern-day Iraq. And so if you look on the, the map and you see where Iraq is, that you can, that's where all of these stories take place. It was 605 B.C. Nebuchadnezzar, he invades Jerusalem. He invades Israel. And like he always did, when he invaded a country, instead of taking slaves, he would gather the best and the brightest, he would bring them back, and he would turn them into Babylonians. Well, Daniel is one of these young men who are there in Jerusalem, probably a teenager at that point. And we know four of those who were taken from Israel, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Well, between chapter 4, where we were last week, and chapter 5, there's about 30 years in between these two chapters. And Nebuchadnezzar dies, and the power of Babylon begins to fade. And the main character today is a king by the name of Belshazzar. He is actually Nebuchadnezzar's grandson. 
And Belshazzar is about as arrogant as you can become. We actually know the exact date of this Bible story right here. It happened on October 12th, 538 BC. The Persian Empire is becoming powerful and they've surrounded the city of Babylon and they're about to seize it. And Belshazzar thinks that he is so powerful that nobody can touch him. Instead of defending the city, he decides to throw a big party. We're going to pick up the story in Daniel chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. It says, King Belshazzar gave a great banquet for a thousand of his nobles, and he drank wine with them. While Belshazzar was drinking the wine, he gave orders to bring in the gold and silver goblets that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken from the temple in Jerusalem, so that the king and his nobles, his wives, and his concubines might drink of them. Well, when Nebuchadnezzar uh, would conquer a nation, this is Belshazzar's grandfather, even though it calls him his father, that would be a normal thing in literature that they would do. He would go into these countries and he would take all of their idols from those nations and he would put them in his treasure house. And he would celebrate that their god, they called him Marduk, was more powerful than the other gods. So they would put Marduk in the middle of their treasure house. They would put all of these idols of all of these nations that they'd conquered around. Well, when they conquered Israel, they found that the Jewish people didn't have any false idols. That's because God commanded them not to. In the Ten Commandments, he said, you shall not make any kind of an idol in in any way. So when they conquered Israel, they couldn't find any idols, but they went into the temple and they went into the Holy of Holies and they took whatever they could find. They took the plates, the silverware, the cups, they packed them all up, they put them in the treasure house, and they've been in storage all of this time. Verse 3, it says, So they brought in the gold goblets that had been taken from the temple of God in Jerusalem, and the king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines drank from them. As they drank the wine, they praised the gods of gold and silver, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone. It says as they were drinking wine, the actual word for this is a lot of wine, that the alcohol is flowing at this point. And so they brought in these goblets that had been in storage all of these years. These are the holy articles from the temple of God. And they use these to toast their false gods. Now, I want to stop here for a second because I don't want you to miss the significance of what's happening right here in this story. When Moses led the children of Israel out of Egypt, and then they wandered in the desert for 40 years, that God commanded them to make certain things for worship, for worshiping God, to make bowls and cups. And in Leviticus chapter 8, Moses anointed these articles, and he pronounced them holy. They were reserved exclusively for God. And they were put in the most holy place in the temple, and they were to be used only for the worship of God. It is these very articles, it's these very things that Belshazzar, he takes them out of storage, and they're brought into the party, and he uses them to toast their false gods. Think about this. They are treating the holy as unholy. It's one of Satan's greatest tactics in your life and my life to take what is holy, to take what God has set aside and to treat it, it's no big deal. It's just common that we take the holy and we treat it as unholy. Well, that's what's going on in this story and going on here in verse five. It says, suddenly the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall near the lampstand in the royal palace. 
The king watched the hand as it wrote. His face turned pale and he was so frightened that his legs became weak and his knees were knocking. That if you've ever used the phrase, the handwriting on the wall, if you've ever used that phrase, you were quoting scripture. This is where it came from. You were quoting the Bible and you didn't even know it. That it's the hand of God who is writing on the wall. And this king, Belshazzar, his knees begin to knock together. He's scared to death. Says the king summoned the enchanters, the astrologers and diviners. Then he said to these wise men of Babylon, whoever reads this writing and tells me what it means will be clothed in purple and have a gold chain placed around his neck and he'll be made the third highest ruler in the kingdom. The third highest because Belshazzar, he's the king, he's the highest. His dad is still alive. He is the former king and this would be the third in line. Then all the king's wise men came in. They could not read the writing or tell the king what it meant. So King Belshazzar became even more terrified, and his face grew more pale, and his nobles were baffled. Well, it's about at this time that the queen has a suggestion. She said, there was a guy in your grandfather's administration, and he could, he could interpret dreams. I wonder if he could tell us what this means. Well, Daniel at this point is about 80 years old. Daniel's been in retirement for years, but they send for Daniel. They find him and they bring him to the party and they tell him, they say, if you can tell us what this means, you know, we'll give you the royal clothes, a gold chain, anything you want. You'll be the third most powerful person in the kingdom. Verse 17, it says, then Daniel answered the king, you may keep your gifts for yourself and give your rewards to someone else. Nevertheless, I will read the writing for the king and tell him what it means. He's like, I'm not real sure I want to be third in line to this kingdom because it's about to go down. Nothing as good is going to happen here. Verse 18, your majesty, the most high God gave your father Nebuchadnezzar sovereignty and greatness and glory and splendor. Because of his high position he gave him, all the nations and people of every language dreaded and feared him. Those the king wanted to put to death, he put to death. Those he wanted to spare, he spared. Those he wanted to promote, he promoted. And those he wanted to humble, he humbled. But when, he became, when his heart became arrogant and hardened with pride, he was deposed from his royal throne and stripped of his glory. He was driven away from the people and given the mind of an animal. He lived with the wild donkeys and ate grass with the ox, and his body was drenched with the dew of heaven until he acknowledged that the most high God is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and sets over them anyone he wishes. It's like your grandfather was this great leader and he realized something. Now at this point, Nebuchadnezzar has been dead for about 23 years. So most of the people who are in that room probably had never heard that story before. This story about how Nebuchadnezzar went out to eat grass because God took his sanity away. Most of them had never heard this story before. Look at this, verse 22. He says, but you, Belshazzar, his son, have not humbled yourself even though you knew all of this. You knew this story. All these people probably didn't know this story, but you knew this story. Instead, you have, look at this, set yourself up against the Lord of heaven. 
You had the goblets from the temple brought to you, and you and your nobles, your wives and your concubines drank wine from them. You praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which cannot see or hear or understand. But you did not honor the God who holds in his hand your life in all your ways. Therefore, he sent the hand to write the inscription. He says to him, you knew the story. You knew the lesson of how this all came about. And you were so arrogant that you took what had been set apart for God. You took these holy things and you decided to use it for your own purposes. In other words, he says, you've been warned. You should have known better. But the most high God, the most high God holds your life in his hand. Verse 25, he says, this is the inscription that was written. Many, many, tekel, parson. Here's what these words mean. Many, God has numbered the days of your reign and brought them to an end. That you do not control your own destiny. Your days are numbered. Tekel, you have been weighed on the scales and found wanting. You've been weighed by the most high God and you've come up short. Paris, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. That your kingdom is divided. In other words, your power and your plans, they're temporary. Beth Moore wrote a great Bible study on the book of Daniel. And she says that these three words, these three words that were written on the wall can be interpreted like this. That I am, I know, and I act. That I am, I am in control of your destiny. That I know that what you have done and you've come up short, that I act, I will act to tear the power away from you. There's, here's how it ends, verse 29. It says, Then at Belshazzar's command, Daniel was clothed in purple, a gold chain was placed around his neck, and he was proclaimed the third highest ruler in the kingdom. That very night, Belshazzar, king of the Babylonians, was slain, and his kingdom came to an end. It was it. Daniel says to the most powerful man in the world that God holds your life in his hand. That all of your plans, that all of your power, that God holds all of those in the palm of his hand. No matter how powerful you think that you are, no matter how important you think that you are, God is greater than all of those things. Daniel says to the king that you knew what happened to your grandfather you knew what happened. I think it's so interesting the words that he says. He says, instead, you set yourself up against the Lord. You set yourself up against the Lord. See, we don't think of pride like that. We don't think of pride as setting ourselves up against the Lord. You know, we think of it as a nuisance at worst and a virtue at best. But Daniel says that when you have pride in your life, that you set yourself up against the Lord. In the Gospels, there's three different times, three different occasions that Jesus says these words. He says, whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Whoever exalts himself to this high place will be humbled. Whoever finally humbles himself he will be exalted. James, the brother of Jesus, heard these words of Jesus. Peter, the apostle, heard these as well, and they say the same words. Here's how James says it in chapter 4, verse 6. He says, God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. 
God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. Some of your versions might say shows grace to the humble. Think about this. That if you have a pride issue, God is opposing you. God is opposing your life right now. And the opposite is true as well. That when you are humble, God shows favor to your life. That God will show favor to you. God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. Jim Collins is a best-selling author. He wrote Good to Great. In Good to Great, he talks about these great American companies and what sets them aside from just good companies, because there's a lot of good companies. But he talks about what is it that sets aside those companies from the great companies. And he talks about what he calls a level five leader. And they started by asking the question, what is the distinguishing characteristic of a great leader? When you look at great companies led by great leaders, what do all of these companies have in common? And he said as he began his research, what he assumed would happen, is he said he assumed that the characteristic was charisma. That these companies were led by some charismatic leader that everybody wanted to be a part of. That he had this charisma that everybody wanted to be part of that team. It's not what they found. He said what they found is that the distinguishing characteristic of every great leader was humility. It was humility. He said that they were ambitious, but they were were not ambitious for themselves. They were ambitious for the people who worked for them. I love this quote by C.S. Lewis. He says, true humility is not thinking less of yourself. It is thinking of yourself less. See, that's what humility is. Well, there's a few huge lessons that I think we can get from this handwriting on the wall. Here's lesson number one. Lesson number one is that your life is temporary. The handwriting said that God has numbered your days. That leadership is temporary. Your influence is temporary. Your plans are temporary. Wherever you find yourself today... Wherever you are in this place of life, it will not last forever, which means that everything you have is a stewardship. Simon Sinek is an author, and he writes on humility. And he said he was telling the story about the former undersecretary of defense who was speaking at a large conference. He said as he was speaking at a large conference, he sips out of a styrofoam cup And then he begins to chuckle to himself. And he tells the story. He said that the last year he had spoken at the same conference when he was still the undersecretary of the defense. He said he flew there on first class. When he got off the plane, somebody was there to meet him. They had checked him into his hotel, so he didn't even have to do that. It was all taken care of him. The next morning, that... Um, when he got up, they had a car waiting for him. They took him to the conference. And then when he asked for coffee, they gave him a ceramic cup with coffee. Well, this year as he's speaking, he's no longer the undersecretary. So he flew coach to get there. He lands and no one's there to pick him up. So he takes a taxi. He has to check himself into his own hotel room. The next morning, he has to take a taxi there back. Then he finds this convention center and somehow figures out how to get to backstage, and he asks somebody for a cup of coffee, and they point at the coffee pot where there are some styrofoam cups, and he pours himself coffee in the styrofoam cup. And what he said that he realized is he said, the ceramic cup was never meant for me. He said, it was meant for the position that I held. He said, for me, it's styrofoam. He goes, this is what belongs in my hand, because a leader 
leads with humility. That, it's, that there may be something that a position brings along, but wherever you are, it is temporary. This is what, this is what uh, Moses writes in Psalm one, um, chapter 90, verse 12. He says, teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Or another way that you could interpret this is teach us to live as if our, na- our days are numbered. What's it like for you to live as if your days are numbered so that you can gain this heart of wisdom? That your life, everything you have, it is temporary. Here's lesson number two, is that you are always accountable. You are always accountable. The handwriting on the wall says that you have been weighed on the scales. You've been weighed on the scales. Whatever your place you find yourself, whether you're in a place of power or you have no power at all, wherever you find yourself, you are ultimately accountable to God. And one day you will give an account of how you've managed your life. One day you will give an account of how you managed your power and how you managed your influence. One day you will give an account of your words that you speak, that every word you speak you will give an account of. That one day you will give an account of how you spent your money and what you did with that. That we are always accountable. And then here's the third lesson. Is that God will act accordingly. God will act accordingly in your life. That God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. When we have pride, we set ourselves up against God and God will act accordingly in your life. And some of you are in the whirlwind of this right now. Here's what's interesting is you get to choose. You get to choose. You get to choose if God acts against you or whether God's favor is on you. It is your choice. For King Belshazzar, His enemy is camped outside the palace ready to attack him, and he's inside throwing a party. I think some of us have been in the same place. Maybe you saw little signs of your life beginning to unravel along the way. Things at home, things at work, things in your relationships, maybe even in your health was beginning to erode, and you saw the handwriting on the wall and you kept going. Because back then, maybe it was your parents who warned you. Or back when your friends said, don't go down that road. Back when your spouse said, I'm feeling distant and we need some help. An accountant said, this is a slippery slope. Or a bartender said, you've had enough. Or a judge says that you need to go to anger management classes. Or some preacher dude at church pleaded with you to humble yourself. Oftentimes, we find ourselves in this place. And I hear people say all the time, well, well, you just have to hit rock bottom. Let me say this as lovingly as I can. No, you don't. No, you don't. You have to humble yourself before God. But you don't have to wait until your life hits rock bottom before you make a change. Because you can make a change now. It's like a friend of mine said. He said... He said, when the elevator's going down, you can get off at the third floor. You don't have to take it all the way to the basement. You don't have to let your life hit rock bottom for you to make a change. So how do we do this? How do we do it? How do we go from this place of recognizing our own pride and now beginning to say, okay, I'm accountable for it, that I'm accountable for how I live my life? What do we need to do? 
Well, I want to teach you something that I've done for years. It's a prayer that I pray. This is a prayer that takes the focus off of me and puts it back on God where it belongs. It's just this simple little prayer. God, show me your will for my life. God, show me your will for my life. Because oftentimes it's all about my plans and what I want and my wants. And this is taking the focus off of me and saying, God, I want to know what your will is. God, what's your will for my life? What is your will for my marriage? What's your will for my wife? What's your will for my kids, my job? God, what's your will for my money? I pray this for the church almost on a daily basis. God, show me your will for this church. What if you begin to pray this prayer? God, show me your will for my life. Even if you're not sure that God is a personal God. Some of you aren't sure if God's a personal God or not, but what if you just begin to pray this prayer? God, show me your will for my life. What could God begin to do when we make our heart pliable to the working of God? God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. Beth Moore has an amazing piece on pride that I want to read for you. This is what she writes. She says, my name is pride and I am a cheater. I will cheat you out of your God-given destiny because you demand your own way. I will cheat you out of contentment because you deserve better than this. I will cheat you out of knowledge because you already know it all. I will cheat you out of healing because you're too full of me to forgive. I will cheat you out of holiness because you refuse to admit when you're wrong. I cheat you out of vision because you would rather look in the mirror than out the window. I cheat you out of genuine friendship because nobody's going to ever know the real you. I cheat you out of love because real romance demands sacrifice. I cheat you out of greatness in heaven because you refuse to wash another's feet on earth. I cheat you out of God's glory because I convince you to seek your own. My name is Pride and I'm a cheater. You like me because you think I'm always looking out for you. Untrue. I'm always looking out to make a fool of you. God has so much for you, I admit, but don't worry. If you stick with me, you'll never know. See, pride will cheat you out of the life that God has for you. It will cheat you out of the road that God wants to take your life on. Because your life can be this adventure, being in the hands of God, because all of our lives, all of your plans, all of your power, they're in the palm of God's hand. God holds them in his hand. Saying, God, I am not going to let pride cheat me out of the life that you have for me. Because what pride does, it hurts churches. It kills relationships. It damages families. And it's coming to this place of saying, pride, you are not going to cheat me out of this life that God has for me any longer. See, humility is the soil where God does his work in us. Humility is the, the soil where God begins to breed new life in us. And God's trying to to just break up that hardened soil of your heart 
and begin to plant something in there that God can use, that God can do something with. So I want to pray together. I just want you to bow your heads. And I want to give you just a moment just to pray this prayer. God, show me your will for my life. Just tell God this right now. God, show me your will for my life. God, we submit our lives to you. God, in surrender and submission, God, we lay our lives down to you and our plans, our positions, our influence. God, and we begin to acknowledge that we want your will to be done, not our will. Because when our will is done, it kills our relationships. It damages families. So God, show your will for our life. God, I pray that you would be working in the person here right now. Maybe there are some people who just want to know if they can trust you with their salvation. And God, you would just speak to them right where they are. We pray this in the name of the one who humbled himself on the cross and died for our sins. In the name of Jesus, amen.